I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey, music nerds, how are you doing? Well, it's part time of the Malcolm Byrne episode, and anytime I do these two-part episodes, I keep the intro minimal or zero, basically. So uh, if you haven't listened to episode one yet of the Malcolm Byrne episode, um, please go back and check it out, and we're picking up right where we left off, right about now. I thoroughly believe that what Bob Dylan required at that point in his career was someone to to not just go along with him because he was Bob Dylan. Right. You know, he, he definitely needed somebody with the fortitude and the, and the strength and, and the uh, self-assurance to sort of push him in directions that he might not be very comfortable with yeah. and to occasionally tell him that, hey, you know what, that could be better. Yeah. You know, I think many many artists, when they get to a certain stage, they really require that, you know, because mm-hmm. everyone becomes a, you know, like a, a bootlicker and sick of fan. Oh, right. it's great, you know you're just great to who you are. And it's like, no, I'm not. I I can suck too. (laughs) You know, so to have somebody with, with a sense of, um, you know, uh, just being able to sort of stand up and say, you can do better, you know, which is one of the reasons I always admired Dan on that level. Was that kind of thing happening on that record? Like were songs being, being uh, sort of gone through and, and then Lanois would maybe say, you know, I, I think, we could work on this song a little bit or, or were the songs, the songs and you guys were just, um, you know, sonically experimenting. Well, I mean, again, because, because of specifically to Bob Dylan and perhaps this might've applied to someone like Mike Cohen, you know, the words are really it with Bob. I mean, you know, he, he 
would come in with sheets of lyrics that were mostly finished, you know, and it was just a matter of finding something to put the words to. Okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like almost like a back- backdrop for the music. Although, you know, it, we all had have our preferences of, you know, there might be an, a reference or something like a reference to a Fats Domino song or a okay. feel, you know, kind of a feel that might be interesting for the song. But, um, you know, but he would part, have like, he would have the the melodies and the and the chords down as well, or just the lyrics. Um, there'd be sort of a vague chord structure, okay. like a loose chord structure, yeah. and but uh, beyond that, it, it would be completely, um, you know, just whatever came out at that moment, you know. Wow. So cool. Um, I'm really interested in the the whole thing about you and and Mark Howard and Lanois like mixing. Can you tell me a bit about whether it's in the context of Oh Mercy or maybe a, a different album that stands out for you, like maybe Wrecking Ball or something, how the mixing process actually went, like who was doing what and and what kind of um, involvement ever, the three of you had? Um, I, I can't imagine working that way. Like I can't imagine having that many cooks in the kitchen. So could you tell me a bit about maybe in the, in the context <laughs> well, of, of yeah. a particular record, how that worked? Well, I'll, I'll, in in... in particular, uh, well, there's two records that we used a similar approach. It's kind of like tag team mixing okay. um, <laughs> where, you know, one, one person would do something and then you get it to a certain point and then, you know, Dan would say, okay, Mark, why don't you jump on there and see what you can come up with? And, oh, and then cool. Dan would jump on there and fiddle around with it. And then I might just go back on there. And, and, and in fact, on the board in, uh, for example, at Kingsway, we had, Dan had this uh, API console mm-hmm. and it had 40 channels, you know, the main channels, but then it had this thing, what we what we affectionately nicknamed the jukebox, which was basically 24 faders yeah. with no nothing else. They're just the op amps, the faders, and a volume control and a pan. Uh-huh. And that was, that was the headphone mixing system. Oh. But in fact, there was a certain sonic quality because there was far less electronics, so there was no you know, there's probably 50% less electronics for the signal to go through. So it, it seemed to be a fuller, richer, more pure sort of tone. Oh. And so we would, sometimes we'd, we'd have a mix going on on the main part of the board, and then Mark would sort of do what we call a jukebox mix. He'd go over on the other side of the thing and set up a mix over there. And so we'd have these sort of like competing mixes going on. On the same, on the <laughs> same console? on the same console, wow. you know, and, it, and it's sort of a health, it's sort of like healthy comp, so a healthy set of competitiveness. Right. <laughs> like, Oh yeah. You think yours, you think yours is good. Let me show you this. <laughs> you know, you sort of go in there and try and impress everybody with your mix. And, you yeah. know, it was, a, it was in generally in good faith, you know, it wasn't like any animosity there, but it was a sort of an interesting way of sort of, bringing out that kind of competitive spirit sure. <laughs> for people to just do that, do, to do their best. And, and so, you was know, for a, example, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say on, on the wrecking ball album, because we originally recorded it up in Nashville, a studio called Woodland, which is uh, this great old studio that now Dave Rollins, Dave Rollins and place. Yeah. took over. But when we were up there, I did all of the mixes. So oh. some of the mixes, like some of the mixes that were done up there, ended up going on the record, and they were just they were done there, 
they weren't even like mix mixes or mixes that were done the night we tracked the song. And I just, I would always, you know, spend an extra 40 minutes doing a mix of the song that we'd been working that day just to have something good. That's the other thing, you know, mixing to me, and this is the way we never, we never had like a mixing stage. Okay. Like it was a mix as you go. It's called mixing as you go. Yeah. In other words, you do rough. What there was never such a thing as a rough mix. It was just right. a mix. Yeah. So you do a mix today. You track the song, or even if you just add a new instrument and say, "Oh, put a put a roughy down." You know, put the mix down. We'll see what it sounds like. And then <laughs> we you use that come word back roughy to that too. later. <laughs> you come back to that later and say, "Wow, that's really got something." And maybe you've added a few new things. So sometimes I would just take those new things and just stick them on top of that old mix. You uh-huh. know, if I could just couldn't get back to that magical balance, whatever that was. So again, it's sort of like taking the formality out of things, which quite frankly, yeah. they become kind of res- restrictions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and, and then, and then we moved down to Kingsway and a bunch of mixes were done down there. So some of those ended up on the record. Okay. And then there was like, I had to go work on another project. So Dan and Mark went out to a place in California, uh, Oxnard, and just did some mixing out there and some one or two of those things ended up on the record so the, the record has got this you know it's all like snapshots of different things all going on somehow it all goes together you know? it sure does as opposed to, you know a lot of people go for a sort of sense of homogeneity homogeneity yeah I know what you mean <laughs> homogeneity homogeneity <laughs> yeah. uh, homogeneity where you know it's like all the drums have the same sound, all the vocals have the same kind of reverbs, all the guitars are you know placed a certain way. Yeah. Quite frankly, I find that a bit boring myself. Sure. But, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to make a record like that. To be honest with you, <laughs> be like, probably go play golf at that point. More fun, <laughs> better exercise. You know. Could we just jump over the? I guess uh, since you started talking about it, to um, your relationship with Emmy Lou Harris because. Uh, um, that re- I mean, the Wrecking Ball album is huge for me as a musician and, and producer as well. Um, you know, sonically, it's so interesting. And she's like at the height of her powers. And it's just such an incredible record. And then that evolved into you producing Red Dirt Girl, which is also spectacular. And it's in, in sort of different ways. Can you maybe talk about those two records and how they're different, how your involvement was different, and maybe just some impressions of working with Emmylou Harris? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the obvious difference between Wrecking Ball and um, Red Dirt Girl is that on Wrecking Ball, I was um, a collaborator, a musician, a recordist, and a mixer. Um, but obviously the ultimate decision-making process was Dan was producing it, so it sort of yeah. fulfilled a little more of his vision uh, that way. And the most basic, uh, the most fundamental a- aspect to that is that, first of all, um, when Emmy went to do that record, the Wrecking Ball album, she was at this sort of crossroads in her career. She was no longer really fitting into the country thing. Yeah. And I, I think she'd signed to a new label, um, Asylum, I think. And, and, and the label guy, I forget the guy's name, real, really great visionary guy that's helped set up that right label. Uh, I can't remember his damn name, but he had said to her, Emmy, you can work with anybody. 
Like, mm-hmm. pick someone in the world you'd like to work with, and I'm sure they would be more than happy to work with you. Yeah. And she'd heard, she'd heard Afadi, yeah. she'd heard Oh Mercy, and she'd heard the Yellow Moon record, and she loved, she, and she said, well, what, what's going on with these records? And she saw that it, they were all made by the same people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was me and Mark and Dan, you know? Yeah. And she said, well, I, wh- whoever was behind those records, I, I would like that. So she chose to work with Dan. I think Mark was busy doing something so he couldn't get involved in the record ball, at least not right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. He was off doing something. But, but I, you know, I became part of that thing. And, you know, so, so that was how that evolved. But the other primary difference was that on Wrecking Ball, I don't think any had her writing credit on more than one song, and even that was a co-write with Rodney Crowell. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so most of us, almost every song on that record is, a, you know, her doing amazing versions of other people's songs. Yeah. And, and I think the song choices were, were really great, like between her and myself, and, and oh, and then Dan wrote this "Where Will I Be" track, which ended up being the first track on the record. Yeah. So, so the, he got he got a chance to <clears throat> show off his own songwriting, but um, he, he wouldn't allow her to 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 um to to be, to be involved in the songwriting for whatever reason. I just didn't think he had confidence in her in her abilities. Uh-huh. So, and so, when we finished Wrecking Ball, at one point, I Emmylou and I were t- talking. And I said to her, you know, I mean, if we ever work together again, I, I'd love it if, if most of the stuff on, on your next record was yours. It was yours. Because she played me a few things just sitting around, and I thought, well, geez, you know, if we just put a bit of work into that, that could be great, you know? Yeah. So so the fun, fundamental difference between those two albums was that she, when, when we went to do Red Dirt Girl, I mean, she wrote all those tracks. Yeah. And, and they're, they're some of the most reviewing heart, you know, very touching um, yeah. reviewing songs that she's ever done. I think she co-wrote at least one track with Guy Clark. I think she wrote Bang the Drum with Guy. Right. Um, and she wrote, she, she did a couple of co-writes on the record, but still they were her. She had her hand in everything. Yep. Her, her songs. So that was really the big the big difference between those two records is, was was that because the way we made the records is not fundamentally different. I mean, Red Dirt Girl is made in my house in New Orleans, which is not unlike the way we made, say, Bo Mercy. Okay. Just everybody set up in one big room yeah. making a record together, you know. And, uh, and, and, and Wrecking Ball was done, was tracked entirely at Woodland in Nashville? Not all of it. Um, I'd say like eighty percent of it was done at Woodland, and then okay. um, "Where Will I Be" was recorded in um, New Orleans at Kingsway, and "Going Back to Harlem" was recorded at Kingsway as well. So, was yeah. there a conscious decision to work at a at an actual studio? Like you guys had a real vibe and a and a place set up in New Orleans. Why was it Emmy Lou's um, choice to work in her hometown or something that brought you to Nashville? Yeah, I'm sure there was some aspect of that because at that time, Emmy was living with her mother, who was getting a little older, and she 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 genuinely genuinely would prefer to be closer to her family okay. if she's working, if she has a choice, you know. So because she spends so much 
time on the road, you know, like, yeah. So, and, and Woodland, you know, turned out to be a fantastic, I mean, it's one of my favorite studios I've ever worked in, you know, it's a great room. I love that room. It's kind of like the more of a classic. See, I like the old sort of classic style studios where you just got like this big room, you know, and, you know, that kind of setup, but anything in between kind of doesn't really get me going. Right. Although I did enjoy working at uh, the, the when had the RCA place. Uh, I made a record there, which I liked a lot. The, the studio, Studio B. Yeah, there's um, B and A. B is the, B is the smaller one. A is the Chet Atkins room, the gigantic one. You might be talking about A. A is the room that that, that uh, you know it's like a basketball court. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, that yeah. Dave Cobb has that place now. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, that's a great room. I love it. Yeah. And and some of the other musicians on, on Wrecking Ball are really interesting. Like Larry Mullen Jr. plays drums on it. And, uh, of course, Daryl Johnson, who you guys had worked a bunch with. Um, were, those, were the band and, and Emmy Lou all recorded pretty live? Like you talked before about her live performances being a part of it. But was everybody, like, was there any gelling process or, like... Um, you know, what was the actual musicianship between all the players like for that record? Well, we just set up in a big circle, mm-hmm. you know, Larry and one end of the circle, and then he over in the other axis of the circle, and Dan sat next to her, me on the piano, sat next to, to, to Dan, and uh, Tony Hall was playing the bass on a right. lot of that record. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just a big And then we'd have, occasionally we'd have like guests. Like, we, we tried to get people who would, like, for example, when we did the Steve Earle song, Goodbye, yeah. Steve came in just for the day, and he, he was involved. And then when we did the Lucinda Williams' Sweet Old World track, she managed to get into the studio for the day while we were doing that. You know, so they'd have the sort of the guest chair. But really, it's just this bunch of people in the room all looking at each other and playing. Yeah. You know, that's how we did it, you know? Now, n- no knock on Larry Mullen Jr., because he's great, and he was a, the perfect guy. But, like, how does how did he get chosen for that project uh, you know, when you guys are surrounded by all these New Orleans players and Nashville players, like what was the, what was the process of getting him to play drums on that record? Um, to be honest with you, I don't know exactly how that evolved, but I think at that time, Larry had been playing, he'd done some, a bit of recording in Nashville and I think he's sort of enjoying just being, Oh, okay. Being in a different role, Yeah, you know, just being like a drummer. He played on, Nancy Nancy Griffith's record. Okay, and he really loved it. He really loved just being the just drummer, being, right? Like just hired come in and play drums on a record. You know, yeah. He didn't get that opportunity very much, and you know, perhaps when you know at some point Dan and Larry had been talking, and maybe Dan said to Larry, oh, "I'm going to be doing this record." I can imagine Larry just saying, "Dan, oh, you know, if you're going to make that record, I want to be on it." You know, like yeah, that would yeah. Make sense. But once once we got back to New Orleans, uh, we ended up actually it was the very first time we'd worked with Brian Blade. It was on that song "Where Will I Be?" Right. And I think Dan had Dan had seen Brian playing at one of the little jazz clubs down on Frenchman Street. Uh-huh. And thought, this well, guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I I think I see a future with this kid. You know? <laughs> so he came yeah. in and played on that track. Amazing. And so, and Red Dirt Girl, who who are the key players in on in the band on that record? Probably the most important other person on that record was Ethan, Ethan Johns. Oh, okay. As a matter of fact, yeah, yeah. He was he was yeah he he was kind of like 
the kind of jack of all trades on that record. I mean, Buddy Miller came and played on a, a number of things too, but Ethan was really around for a lot of the basic tracking yeah. stuff. I so guess was was, was was Buddy in her touring band at that point? I guess he was, right? Yeah, yeah, Spy Boy. You know, that right. was what they put together after the um, the uh, Wrecking Ball tour. You know, yeah. that was the thing for the Wrecking Ball thing. So, yeah, the drawing on that record. Some of it was Daryl Johnson. Okay. And Daryl played bass on a lot of the tracks on the yeah. record. I, I played bass on some of the record. Um, and, you know, that record doesn't have a lot of live drums on it, to be honest with you. But I think oh, it's really? only like two or three songs. Yeah, there's not a lot of live drumming. It's all sort of more um, like that song Tragedy is just a drum machine. So right. <laughs> just a loop. I was kind yeah. of getting, I was was in my loop phase, so <laughs> I was applying a lot of electronic backbeats to shit, you know, on that record. So yeah, you know, that's the other difference. Is you know, I, I sort of thought it'd be interesting to mix electronic beats and things with with sort of a more folky country singing. Sure. Yeah, back then I don't think a lot of people were doing that yet, so it was kind of a new thing. Did you run into much resistance, you know, from like labels or people that were? you know, precious with with an artist like Emmylou Harris who, you know, came up in the in the country world and clearly she, her kind of country wasn't really in favor anymore. So she was in need of a new direction. But like, was there, were there people that were hearing it at, at any point on either of those records? Just being like, what what are you guys doing? Like, how, Oh, no, is, no. Okay. No, no, no. There was always like 100% full support. Oh, wow. Okay. The, Interesting. Yeah, the business. Because, yeah. Yeah, she went, she, you know, Asylum gave her sort of carte blanche, and then when she signed to none such records for the Wrecking Ball, I mean, for Red Dirt Girl, again, they were like, none such was like, just do whatever you want. Like, they're cool. They, they don't even, you know, they just, they're just like that, you know? So there was no, there was never any yeah. any sort of involvement on that level whatsoever. And she was you know? down with it? Like, like it doesn't sound like anything remotely like what she'd done before. She she was just right in right in there into it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, she she was totally. I mean, I I give her hundred percent full credit for those records as much as anybody else was involved. I mean, you know, she she definitely was. You know, she knew she wanted to do something different. I mean, ironically, she she never smoked until she until she started making a Wrecking Ball. Really? Uh, and I was like, what? Why? <laughs> And she said, well, I, I just thought it might help my voice have a slightly different texture. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, she's, not a, she's not a heavy smoker, but she, she'd smoke these hand-rolled things. And, yeah. You know, and she thought that oh, I'd give her a little more gravitas. Well, it does sound smoky. <laughs> a lot of those records like Oh Mercy and Wrecking Ball and Red Dirt Girl, they sort of have a late-night vibe. Like, um, is that, am I just making that up? Or like, were you, were you working late hours into the night and stuff like that. Like I can't, some of those songs, some of those tracks, I can't imagine being done at like three in the afternoon, but maybe I'm wrong. No, well, actually, I mean, Wrecking Ball was, was very, um, kind of by the clock. Like we would show up at 11 o'clock in the morning oh, wow. kind of get ready, and then, you know, we'd be recording by noon, Yeah, you know, we'd, we'd figure out what we're going to do and then we'd start doing it and we'd take a dinner break around, six, you know, for an hour and a half or two. And then we'd come back and work till about, I think we usually would, we'd, we'd, we wouldn't record past usually about 10. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in, in the evening. And then I would sort of stick around for maybe another half hour, 40 minutes, just doing, you know, quick, quickie mixes off the board. You know, yeah. the other thing to remember is that when you're working all day and you get your, your, your board set up, you know, to a certain, you know, you, you, you're, you're at a point pragmatically because you're, you're, you're get you're, you know, you're, you're adding things and things sort of evolve. Mm-hmm. And then, so you have to think that, well, maybe that's telling them something. Right. So why not put down what you've, where yeah. you're at? Yeah, totally. Because you might, even if you, even if that's not the final thing, it's, you know, you might learn something. Now, the other thing is I never use automation. I rarely use it. So I don't have to worry about like getting, painting myself into a corner as mm-hmm. it were, which a lot of times when people are using automation, you know, they, because there's, you know, they just press the button and the whole mix comes back and it's yeah. all there again. You know, it, it's like you sort of stop thinking outside of the box. Whereas if every time you put up the song and you have to reconstruct it, you might, and it's a simple idea. Like, <clears throat> for example, if you're working on one song or let's say you're doing a mix, right? Yeah. And you get the mix done and you think it sounds great. Well, the last thing in the world you want to do is, put up the next song and neutralize the board. Like, right. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you just put up the next song and see what happens, whatever you've got going and maybe something miraculous happens. Like maybe you've got yeah. some amazing um, sound on something that you, you know, it's some effect or something like that that you'd spent hours on. And suddenly, you know, it ends up, you know, maybe it's on a different channel and it ends up on the vocal channel instead of the guitar channel. And you're like, right. Holy crap, that's interesting. You know, yeah. so, you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Like, I do. I do. Totally. Know? Yeah. I've actually heard that you guys so, work that way and, and occasionally, yeah, it would, you would just like luck into something that was spectacular that way. Yeah. You sort of, you know, you always have to be sort of, you know, you got to be sharp. You got to keep your, mm-hmm. keep, keep things musical and sort of always be on the lookout for something that that's, you know, I remember one time I was, I was, um, working on something or other with Dan mixing something or other. I think this might've been, this might've been for, for his second solo record called the beauty of Winona. Mm-hmm. And I was working on something and he, he got a little frustrated cause I, I think he didn't, wasn't feeling it or something like that. And he said, yeah. look, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go for a ride on my motorcycle and I'll leave you with this for a couple of hours. And he said, the only thing I just wanted to, to tell you is like, whatever I hear when I get back, I want it to be absolutely original. Brilliant. <laughs> and I was like, okay. See you later. <laughs> sure. Wow. I can just whip that off in a minute, you know, but, yeah. but you know what I mean? Like it, it's nice to have that sort of pressure to come up with something. Right. But it isn't necessarily, you know, you know, a new angle or something original, you know, or, or, or doing something where you're bored and you're sick of it and just decide, what if I just take all the drums out? What if there aren't any drums, even though I might've spent like seven hours recording these drums and mm-hmm. they sound amazing, but it's just not helping the song. Yeah. You know, you have to be able to, you have to be, not be precious about certain things and just be able to let them go, you know? Yeah. And say, well, you know, if it ain't working, it ain't working, you know? Yeah. And I just went back through that the other day. I was recording something and spent, you know, six hours recording these drums and, and I went back and listened to the mix that I'd done without the drums and liked it better, you know, just from the emotional visceral point of view, it just 
work better. So you know, it's like, well, too bad I wasted six hours on those drums. But maybe <laughs> I'll, happens. Maybe I'll yeah. use the drums for another song. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll find a way. You know, I'll put them through some weird delays and make them into a different song. You know, At least so, you got them. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Um, is there, was there a, a last record that the three of you kind of worked in that way on where, where that sort of signaled the end of that? Like, I'm not really aware of where your working relationship with those guys sort of stopped. Like at some point you guys just sort of all went your separate ways. It seems like. Yeah. I mean, you know, Dan moved out to LA uh, with Mark. I'm, yeah. I ended up moving up to New York. Um, and, you know, people evolve and, you know, you're not, I mean, the worst thing in the world is to ever think that, you know, we're going to get back. Like, I remember Larry Mullen said to me once, you know, because we were discussing U2 and their trajectory and, and I'd said something to Larry. I said, Larry, you know, I don't mean to sound like a, you know, you know, a, a jerk here, but <laughs> I love your first couple of albums, like especially Bo- uh, War, you know, that uh, U2 yeah. album War. Just thought that was like a spectacular, you know, because he was talking about what they were going to do next. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, naively, I'd said, well, why don't you kind of get back to the drawing boards and just get four guys in the, in the room and just rock out and make a good little record? And he looked at me and said, you know, you, you have to understand something about you too. Everything that we do, the next thing has to be bigger and better than the last thing you do. That's <laughs> right. what, that's what, that's why we're you too. So, and he, he literally said, you know, you can never go back. You, know, you uh-huh. can only ever go forward. You know, uh-huh. so you know, I, I suppose there may come a time when Dan and Mark and I, or Dan and I, might work together. But it would have to be under this, under the premise that what we were doing was bringing something, say, you know, new that would develop separately mm-hmm. through a new situation, rather than sort of. You know, oh well, we're going to go back and do something like what we used to do because that's not going to happen. Right, right. So, Could we just talk a, a little bit about Chris Whitley? Um, I know you had uh, a, a big hand in his first record, which was a really spectacular record, I, I thought, and the songs were. Okay. That record was really important to me, and I, I actually, when I was, uh, I went to Berkeley in Boston, and when I was going there. Chris Whitley had just signed his deal and I guess was making the record with you and they were sending him around and he spent, I think like a good month and a half or something in Boston. And he would do in stores at tower records like every day. So I would walk past tower records 
on my way to school and he would be playing in there. And so I, I saw him a ton of times just like playing these in stores and got to love, love him as an artist, you know, before the record even came out. And then the record came out and it, it really blew my mind as well. Um, so I would love to hear just, you know, how, how that came about and, and meeting him and he's such an incredible artist and, and maybe just the, the process of working on living with the law. Luckily, my memory's still pretty good about that. <laughs> um, Chris had met um, before I before I knew of Chris. Um, Dan and myself and Chris had a mutual friend in New York, a photographer by the name of Karen Kuhn. Mm-hmm. And Karen had seen Chris probably standing on the street busking, and 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 just. Like many people, probably just went holy shit. Like this yeah. is great, and she so she became familiar with Chris, and um, and she knew Dan. So she, at one point, she said, "Dan, I've, I've discovered this great guy. This you got to hear him." But so I think Dan was in New York, and and Karen sort of made it, hooked up a meeting. It's like we all they all showed up at Karen's loft in Tribeca, and. Um, I think Chris thought, you know, maybe he could work with Dan or whatever or whatever. And and then that was that. And this is before I even knew about Chris. And then Dan and, and myself and Daryl and a few other people were on tour over in Britain. for uh, We were touring Dan's ACID record. Okay. And it was just about towards the end of the thing. And Dan came up to me and he said, look, I've got... I've got this cassette from this guy that I met in New York. He's really, really good. You should check him out. You know, you might want to think about trying to work with the guy because I'm real busy right now. I just don't have the time to, to, to do anything. But so Dan gave me this cassette that Chris had and, um, and I listened to it and I thought, wow, this is really original. So I, I called up Chris mm-hmm. and I said, Hey, this is Malcolm. You know, I, I work with Dan quite a lot. I really love what you're doing. And, so Chris and I just talked for quite a long time on the phone. Probably cost me about 200 pounds in hotel <laughs> phone bill, but whatever, I suppose it was worth it. And I, eventually I said to Chris, look, you know, I'll ask Dan, but maybe you could come down to New Orleans to, uh, to, to, work, to work at Kingsway for a few days. And, you know, I'll, I'll see if Dan can just, like, donate the studio for a few days. So we organized that for maybe a month or two after I got back from the tour. So Chris flew down, and it just so happened that I had um, access to Dan's studio. There was nothing going on, so I brought in drummer mm-hmm. who was playing on on, um, on uh, in Dan's touring band, a guy named Ronald Jones, and I think Daryl was around. So Daryl jumped on bass, and we recorded. I think we recorded three songs. Uh, two of them didn't turn out so good, but the one that turned out really well was "Living with the Law." Mm-hmm. And basically, the the, the the title track, which is "Living the Law," that thing that you hear was that was the recording we made that day, and I mixed it that evening, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's okay. what ended up on the album. Like, that's never did get, we never we never did work on it again. That was just it. <laughs> anyway, so that recording led to a number of people, particularly a woman named Kathleen Carey, who's a publisher who decided to work with Chris and she played that for a couple of different labels and they all just went fucking ballistic. Right. This is 
great. You know, this is like 1989 or something. Yeah. Nobody was doing anything like that in those days. It was just like so different. And I think Sony Records heard it and thought, hmm, maybe we've got the next Bruce Springsteen on our hands or something along those lines. I mean, they literally did feel that and excited about it. So, yeah. so we, you know, Chris, when they asked Chris who he wanted to work with, I mean, Chris was a very loyal person. He said, well, Malcolm, I, you know, obviously I want to work with this guy. Like, sounds great. Why wouldn't I want, why would I want, why would I work with anybody else, you know? Yeah. So basically now I'm, I feel a little guilty about this. Dan has sort of harassed me about it once or twice in the past, but, you know, basically what I did was I just tapped in to the sound of Kingsway yep. and Dan's touring band. I mean, literally the only person in the room that wasn't the same was instead of, you know, in the chair, <laughs> you yep. just put Chris in the chair instead of Dan. Right. You know, but it was the same touring band. It was like Bill Dylan on guitar, me on keyboards and stuff, and Mark Howard on the board when we were tracking, and Daryl Johnson on bass, and uh, Ronald Jones playing drums. And, you know, we just recorded the record just the way we'd always been doing everything else, just everybody in the room yeah, playing away with the floor monitors. And, you know, that was that. And that's pretty much how we made that album, you know. Amazing. Sort of just kind of tapped into a sound, which Dan was a little touchy about, you know, and it was like, well, you, you stole my sound. And I was like, Dan, come on. <laughs> like, you gave it to me. You told me to use it. Don't get mad at me now. And you know? and you did have quite a hand in that sound, obviously. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to say that, you know, I just sort of copied somebody else's thing. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of aspects to that record, which are, I consider somewhat more cinematic. Yeah. Um, which, which would sort of indicate my hand in the matter because, you know, having had that sort of prog, sort of Pink Floyd, sort of sonic journey kind of quality to, to, to my thinking, I mean, that certainly applied with tracks like Dust Radio, where, you know, the yeah. song goes through these phases where eventually, you know, not to be too obvious, but it, the song sort of evolves into a transistor radio. <laughs> You right. know, it goes yeah. through this thing where it fades out. You start yeah. to hear these these people on the radio, like those late night preachers and stuff, and gospel music. And then all of a sudden, the song comes back through the little radio, sort of like "Wish You Were Here" in reverse or something. Uh-huh. You know? So, so you know, there was that aspect, and you know, that wasn't necessarily something Dan would have the patience right. to to have done at that point in his career. So, how did Chris react to playing with a band? Because obviously, he was like doing a ton of solo performing and busking, did he fall right into it? Or was it uh, something that he had to adjust to, to be able to make that happen? Well, because of the way that we would work, we would adjust ourselves to the artist. I mean, Uh that's the thing. You never, the idea is to adjust what you're doing. Like whatever you're doing in the recording process, you you find out where the artist is most comfortable. And then you adjust your way of working to what helps them feel they can get the best out of what they're doing as opposed to like, well, we're just going to lay down these tracks and now you just have to come sing on top of it. You know, like I would never do that, you know? Okay. So, so the, so the idea now I, w- I will say though, that there was a point during the making of that record and it seemed to last a while longer where Chris, at first he was really comfortable and then he started to feel like the thing was getting out of his, out of, out of his hands. Uh-huh. Like it wasn't necessarily the record. He, 
had in mind and it sort of took on because the thing is with records at a certain point they take on a life of their own and it's like sure. it doesn't matter what you do they're just they're just like wild horses come get help yeah. off down the road you better just jump on it you know so so the album started to take on a life of its own you know i think chris felt like it was a little more slick and produced than what he was initially hoping to do yeah you know, and, it's, and if you follow his career, you'll see that he, he he really went way, way, way the opposite direction, and eventually ended up with that album Dirt Floor, which is just Chris, just him and, and a mic, Dobro, you know, which is as pure as it gets. Yeah. And then, ironically enough, his last album, he came back to me and said, "You know what? After all these years, I I really loved that record that we made <laughs> together, and I, I want to eh? make another album with you, which is the last record that we did." So. I got to know him a tiny bit. We we opened for him a number of times, and um, so I I got to know him a little bit, and but not not really. But uh, he was quite a yeah. He was a tortured soul, I guess you could say. Yeah, he was a bit, a bit sort of enigmatic on a certain yeah. level. You know, yeah. you'd think you'd gotten somewhere, and then all of a sudden yeah. something else would come along. And you're like, I don't know what he's talking about now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to harp on about all your your old stuff. I mean, I know you're still actively doing music and, and being a creative guy. Can you maybe just tell me very quickly what your latest um, things are that you're working on? Just so I know what your current stuff is. Well, probably the thing that I'm the most enthusiastic, is that, you know, after all these years of kind of putting, you know, my own music on the back burner, you know, so to speak, you know, cause it's, sort of like the last thing you want to do when you've been working on music all day is go home and work on your own music. <laughs> I just don't want to hear any music right now. Yeah. But I, I, I went through a, a bit of a, a writing binge over the last couple of months. And oh, so cool. now I'm sort of trying to figure out, you know, I've, I've got all this stuff that I've recorded and I just have to figure out what to do with it and how to, you know, this is a different old world now. Of course. Yeah, no kidding. Not like, you know, so, um, I'm just trying to figure out like where to go with it or who to play it for or whatever. So yeah, that's what I'm kind of the most excited about to be honest with you. So there is a Malcolm Byrne album in the works. Yep. Oh, that's so cool. Some of it is pretty traditional. Um, some of it is completely not. I mean, there's a few things that are just more like sound creations. You cool. know? Yeah. Sonic creations, and then and then there are more things that are like yeah, first chorus, bridge, first chorus kind of thing. Because you know, so I've been trying to incorporate a, a slightly broader uh, sense of of um, compositional. Diver- you know, like when you listen to a Harry Nilsson song, you know, and you're like, oh, <laughs> you know that that's interesting. You know how how you could just take that into a different key. Yeah. You know, and make something interesting out of, out of it and sort of pushing, trying to be a little less lazy with the songwriting, you know, yeah. not just go, oh, well, it's got three chords and some lyrics there, you, there you are, I don't have to work on that anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> but then, of course, applying, you know, some sonic things that I've been, that I've learned over the years to, to these things mm-hmm. as opposed to somebody else's music. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm, I look forward to hearing that when it's done and out. Yeah, I'll, I'll 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 let you know when, when I figure out how to get it out there into the world, which is always a challenge these days. <laughs> Who knows? 
Um, okay, well, I thank you so much for talking to me today, man. I, you know, you, you've been a huge inspiration to me over the years, and and it's great to hear straight from the horse's mouth what some of that, uh, some of those projects were actually like. So, thank you. I re- I really appreciate it. Well, and uh, uh, you know, what? it's nice to. It's actually interesting to to think about some of this stuff because it sort of reminded me of of some ideas that I, you know, sometimes you forget stuff you. Can, and other people all these years and you forget yeah forget to take your own advice (laughs) great to talk to you and and thank you again for taking the time yeah well have a great day and it's nice talking to you and i'm sure i'll talk to you again soon all right thus endeth the two-part conversation with malcolm byrne i really hope you enjoyed listening to it i loved speaking with him and learning about all kinds of crazy awesome stuff uh thanks for listening and We will be back next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, B.C. for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.